All right, welcome back to REF. We're doing the Psalms this quarter. Looking through some different Psalms. And um, the Psalms are places where the Bible processes uh, emotion and feeling. And um, I think probably an important, maybe an important way to think about them is uh, Christianity never says you have to stuff down the way you feel. Um, that your feelings are inappropriate and wrong, and so you have to dismiss them or push them down. And at the same time, rarely gives us, uh, uh, rarely kind of recommends that also you need to fully express and give full vent to all of your feelings. And rather, what we really have in the Psalms is actually prayer through our feelings. And that's what's given to us tonight in, the Psalm, in Psalm 46, and it's praying through uh, a topic that a lot of the Psalms deal with, which is the f- sense of fear, kind of the sense of not having control in this world. So this is the word of the Lord addressing that issue. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear that the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you speak into the chaos of life, and you don't pretend it doesn't exist, dear God. And I pray as we consider that, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, um, that we would be given reasonable and right and fruitful tools for just engaging the difficulty and the uncontrollability of life. Holy Spirit, teach us, uh, guide us. Please be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so basically, I was kind of thinking about this sermon, kind of thinking about the topic of fear, and it dawned on me that there's a specific, maybe mini-genre, very specific genre of film that America has kind of committed to and said, Within this tiny, narrow slice of film history, this will be where we process the emotion of fear. And I think we all engage this emotion of fear when we watch these types of movies. And I know you all are thinking exactly what I'm thinking, which is this tiny slice of movies called NASCAR movies, right? Um, Every NASCAR movie you ever watch where NASCAR or stock car racing sits at the center always deals with the issue of fear. Most notably, and maybe most recently, it's Talladega Nights, right? Uh, we want to keep things reverent here in RUF. Um, but I remember this line when I was thinking about it, um, that Reese Bobby, Ricky Bobby's dad, gives him when he's teaching him to drive fast. And he says, there's nothing like avoiding jail uh, to hone your mind and to hone your instincts. Uh, nothing like necessity to do it. So I taped a kilo of cocaine under the car and called the police. You got about two minutes before they show up, and you do five to ten years, what's it going to be? Fear or prison? Um, all throughout that movie, actually, like fear kind of sits at the heart of it, like every NASCAR movie. Go watch a NASCAR movie and prove me wrong. Um, 
But in a sense, like, that's a comedic take uh, on maybe one of the main ways that we deal with this notion of fear. Because what it's kind of getting at, the commentary that I think is going on there and and, uh, all these other places, is this. is like, life's coming. Y'all know it. You feel it. Y'all are busy all the time. It's coming at you. What are you going to do? What are you going to make of yourself? What are you going to make of yourself today and this week and this month and your time at Stanford? There are high expectations on y'all because you're here. And you know that. You place them on yourselves and others have placed them on you. But it's not just academically, but relationally, professionally, spiritually. There are these high expectations. It's all coming at you. What are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do about it? And as it comes at us, and as it comes at us and we realize we can't have the kind of control that we have to have in order to manage it, fear comes in, right? Are you going to fail? Are you going to be the only person that's alone? Are you going to make something of yourself, right? Are you going to wrestle down and harness all the contingencies and the instabilities and all the messiness of life? Can you get a handle on it, right? Use that fear and become something great, right? to harness and make of yourself what you can. What fear is, today we're going to look at basically two paths to deal with the fact that life is too much to handle. Um, Fear is the product of one path. Fear is the product of one way to deal with the fact that life ultimately is unstable, that it's coming at us and we actually can't handle all of it. And that one path, the first one we'll kind of walk down together is this. Cling to your abilities and faculties because you have good ones. You have sharp ones. Right? Cling to them. And what happens when you cling to your abilities and your faculties to harness how difficult and how unstable life is, what that does is that produces fear. Right? I've got to discipline myself. I've got to create my schedule. I've got to, not just for this week, but for life, I've got to manage expectations and I've got to get it underneath control. Right? And what that does is that produces fear because fear is what arises in our hearts when we think that the only tools at our disposal for dealing with instability are our intelligence, our strength, and our sheer force of will. Fear always arises when you think that the way you deal with instability in life is through your just force of will and your determination and your intelligence and your abilities. See, fear is the result of deciding to live within the illusion of control. And what's happening in, in Psalm 46, we don't know the specific circumstances, but I mean, the history of Israel gives us plenty to work with. Um, It's hundreds of years of instability. And so the Psalms appropriate for kind of all situations of instability. But in processing fear and in processing this Psalm, the first thing that happens is he breaks down our illusion of control. Verses 2 and 3 says, We won't fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then verse 6, the nations rage and the kingdom totters. What's he doing here? What's happening is he's kind of displaying this chaos in these big arenas of life, right? He's talking about the chaos in nature, the earth moves, right? And he's also talking about the chaos in civilization, right? People groups, civilizations totter that are on the brink. What he's doing is this. He's taking the two most stable things. And he's saying, do you see they're unstable? He's taking the two most stable things. The ground we stand on and civilization. He's saying, do you see that those things are unstable? 
right? We think, all right, we can trust the ground we stand on, right? We can trust that the water stays in the place where it's supposed to be, right? Those seem like, well, we can pretty much rest that things are going to stay that way. Okay, talk to somebody that was in Haiti. Jay Cherry in the business school here, he told me that when the earthquake hit, you couldn't stand. It actually knocked everybody down. You know, the ground's not stable. Talk to people who've lived through the tsunami. The water doesn't always stay where it's supposed to stay. And the psalmist is saying, don't you see, the most stable things are unstable. Right? And he's saying that as civilization as well. Right? At every time in history... The Babylonians thought, Babylon will last. No one's seen an empire like this. Assyria will last. Israel will last. Rome will last. We all think America will last, right? Because civilization is the greatest achievement of mankind. It is the resources of millions of people applied to sustaining a people group, right? How, can, how could that fall? And yet, it always has. Here's the point. Nature, civilizations... These are the psalmist's two things that he thinks, above all else, we should be able to say, at least this won't change. Right? These are the fundamental. If nothing else, we can say, at least these things won't change. These things, above all things, they won't change. At least we still have this. And what he's saying is, the necessary implication is this. If the ground you stand on can change, if civilization can fall then what about everything else? What he's saying is, everything's game. The two strongest possible sources of stability are in fair play. So everything else on the way down is as well. The point is this, our sense of control is an illusion. And so, in, in some way, to begin to enter into this psalm, and to actually, like, we need to grapple with what I kind of called our, or at least I have this is. What is your, at least I have this? Right? At least I have health. And you know, my body's working right now. Last week, one of my parents' good friend was at a dinner party on Sunday afternoon, had a stomach ache, didn't feel well, went to the doctor the next day, and the doctor said, you have two weeks or less. Right? Health can go in a minute. Some of y'all have experienced that. Right? At least, at least my family is financially stable. Okay, any number of our parents have experienced the reality that you can have a lot of money and then you can have none. Right? At least friends. Right? Maybe you even feel a strong sense of loyalty and you're pretty confident your friends have a strong sense of loyalty towards you. But my guess is we've all had friends that we thought at one point we could say, at least I still have them. And yet they're no longer a part of our life. Right? At least my family. I mean, so many of us are from broken homes. And listen, nobody gets married thinking they're going to be the family that breaks up. Thinking that they're going to be the parents who don't make it. Everybody's convinced on their wedding day they're going to make it. That they're the exception, right? That at least now I have this. And so many of us don't have that anymore, right? Your moral record. I mean, in college ministry, one of the things, one of the conversations that happens a lot as people come to college and then find out in college they're not who they thought they were. And I hear this all the time. I've done things I never thought I was going to do, right? You had this idea of your moral self that was, that, that was pretty admirable in your own eyes. And slowly as kind of life's unfolded, all these obstacles and these boundaries you thought you would never get over, you've gone past, right? 
So I don't have my moral record anymore. Grades, self-discipline, at least have my grades, at least have my self-discipline. Romance, everybody thinks that their relationship is going to be the thing that carries them, right? At least I have this, this won't change. Another psalm about fear is Psalm 3, and it's written by David later in life. And if anybody has a lot of, at least I have this, it's David. He's anointed by God. He's the king of Israel. He's the only person in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. And he writes Psalm 3 in a place of fear because later in life, he's had an affair with his neighbor's wife, had his neighbor killed, his son is now trying to overthrow him, he's actually removed from, this, from his kingdom, and he's on the run. His moral record's destroyed, his authority is gone, his family is destroyed. All of those, at least I have thises, were gone for David. It's hard to figure out, maybe sometimes, what you're, at least I have this, whatever that is for you, until it's threatened or it's taken away altogether. Um, and, and when you come into contact with that reality, that, that that idea that at least I have this is not really true, this is how we respond. We respond with fear-driven striving, Right? Fear is the result of trying to live as if we can assert control over all our circumstances. Fear is the anxiety that's produced by the inability to guarantee our desired outcomes. Fear is that anxiety. When, When we know something in us is screaming, you actually lack the capacity to guarantee what you want to happen in life. It's that unrest, it's the terror, it's the insecurity that comes when you're confronted with the reality that there aren't any, at least I have this is in life. And the very last one we let go of, the very last, at least I have this, that we let go of is this, my striving, right? Because at least at the end of the day, I can strive. Right? What I want you all to see, what I want you all to enter into, and it's terrifying, is y'all, we're afraid. Y'all are successful at your work and school and everything, mainly because you're afraid. Right? Fear drives me as a parent. It drives me as a pastor. I'm terrified of failing. I'm terrified of y'all not thinking having a Ricky Bobby illustration is kind of cool. I'm really terrified about that. I thought about it. I'm like, if this is not funny, and they're like, oh my gosh, this guy's trying to be too relevant. He's really... I mean, that fear entered into me. Fear really drives me up here. That's not okay. Yo, we're afraid. That's what's driving us. You can even be really successful with fear, Right? Can you, can you get into that? Can you get into the fact that, I mean, y'all, we're desperately afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being found out, of being exposed. We all, everybody thinks they're the only one that's afraid of being exposed. That's what's so terrifying about it, is you think you're the only one. Of failing, of getting caught, right? Terrified that we'll actually never be in a relationship, friendship, or romantic relationship that will be safe enough so that we can be known, right? That all of our life we're going to have to live inside of our head and that the things, our secrets, will always have to remain our secrets because there will never be a safe place where we can be known. Isn't that terrifying to know that you always have to live that inside of your head, that maybe you won't have that relationship? We're terrified of confrontation. We can't tell each other the truth, right? It's terrifying. Rejection, missing out, whatever it is. Fear is the anxiety 
that's produced when the real reality hits that we have so little control that really our last at least to have this is at least I can strive. I can work. I can make something happen, right? Anxious striving is our solution. Get control of your circumstances. And it's so ingrained in us that we actually can't conceive that there's another way out of fear. That the way out of fear is then to be successful and to work hard to get control over everything, right? And as long as we rest in our striving, as long as that's our tool for dealing with it, we'll be afraid because even the ground shakes and even civilizations fall. One of the most kind of shocking things when you read the Bible is the command that's given the most often. My guess is none of us in this room would have guessed it. I wouldn't have guessed it until somebody told me. The command given most often in Scripture is not love God, it's not praise God, it's not follow Jesus. It's actually don't be afraid. Do you know that's the command most often given in Scripture? Don't be afraid. And what I hope... What I hope you all feel tonight is this, like, can't you see that the possibility of no longer being afraid might be the very thing in the heart of who we are that we desire more deeply than anything else? Man, don't you want to not be afraid? And if fear is the result of clinging to our own abilities and faculties as the tools for dealing with the instability of life, the only other option is to cling to somebody else. And that's what's being presented here. And the path out of fear is kind of given to us in four stages. And the first one is this. The path out of fear is to cling to someone else. And the first thing, and maybe you recognize this verse when I read it, because it's one we quote a lot, it's verse 10. God speaks in the middle of this verse. He speaks to us and He says, Be still and know that I am God. The path out of fear first starts with this. Stop. Stop. Be still and know that I'm God. And literally what that word be still means, it actually means stop striving. Stop working. Stop trying to control. Stop believing that you can get around to the corner, kind of get to the finish line in life wherever you you officially, here you have life managed, right? Actually, like praise Jesus really and truly, we finally sold our house in South Carolina last week. That's a huge burden lifted. Guess what? This week was still hard. Man, I thought, I only own one home now. Like, do you know how miserable it is to own two homes? I hope you never have to live through that, but it's miserable. I only own one now. That burden's lifted. Guess what? Life's still hard this week. It's still unstable. It's still difficult. We all have those, those mile markers. We think when we get there, right, we won't have to strive anymore. What God's saying is, stop striving. The be still is literally, stop striving. That's what the word in Hebrew, means. Stop believing that you're going to get there to the place where it's okay. Some of what people fear is this. You fear not being busy. That you wouldn't know what to do. And so you've just got to stay busy. You strive and strive because you wouldn't have a sense of self if you weren't busy. Right? And into that, God says, stop. Stop striving. Stop thinking that fear is relieved once you have control. That's what we think. Fear will be kind of relieved, it'll be managed, it'll be put away once I have control around everything, right? Once I no longer own a house in South Carolina. Whatever it is for you, right? 
This is what an eating disorder is, is that belief as our guiding principle in life. An eating disorder is this. It's a response to fear. It's take hold of something you can't control, right? I'm afraid that my body's going to betray me, that I won't be able to control it. So I'm going to take control of it, right? And it's a strong assertion of control, determined discipline, guided by the belief that if I get control over it, then I'm going to be released of that fear. It will not be allowed to betray me, right? And I'm going to be released of fear. And the exact opposite is what happens. You know, our whole lives are an eating disorder. If I get control over this, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. And then, but what actually happens, right? You become difficult to deal with. We become hard. We can't relate to each other very well because we're so turned in on ourselves that we don't even know that people can't relate to us anymore. Intimacy is threatening, right? Being known is threatening. Other people picking at our facade, right? Trying to peel it back, their threat, and fear grows. The more things that you try to wrap your fingers around and, kind of tr- and try to control and think, if I harness this and I get it taken care of, you have to hold it all the more tighter and you get more and more fearful because you can't. Fear grows. God's saying, stop. Stop thinking that fear is relieved when you have control and stop thinking fear is relieved when you can finally change your circumstances. Right? The wins and the if-onlys. You know, there are certain circumstances if I can get these changed in my life. When these circumstances are no longer present in my life. When summer gets here. When I graduate. When I find a lover. When I'm successful. Yeah. The awesome thing and the scary thing about the psalm is that it's a picture of growing into fearlessness in the midst of difficult circumstances, not by the removal of difficult circumstances. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And so we won't fear, not when the earth stops giving away, we won't fear even though the earth is giving way. The cool thing about the psalm is that this is a story of becoming fearless in the midst of difficult circumstances, not by the removal of difficult circumstances. The more things you try to take hold of, hoping to become less fearful are going to make you more and more fearful and that's why God says cease striving cease striving be still so the first point is to stop the second point then is to get a sense of the power of God that's the second half of verse 10 this is God's address at the end be still and know that I am in control right Stop, having, stop trying to have control and know that God is in control. The verse is not stop and withdraw from life and withdraw from the busyness and the messiness. That's sometimes the way it's been wrongly interpreted. But look at the context, right? The context is right in the middle of the chaos of life. It's actually saying stare right down into the teeth of the busyness and the chaos of life and know that I am God. Don't withdraw. This verse is not to be read in nature when you're away from business. This verse is to be read in the middle of midterm season. Staring into the teeth of how difficult life is and the business of it and knowing God's sovereign. And and as the song unfolds, you see that within the chaos and instability of the world, it doesn't win, right? It's not bigger than God. In verse 6, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. 
But then you hear this. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And you start to see that God's an actor in all of this. Not just an actor. He's actually sovereign over all of it. Right? Come and behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the earth, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots in the fire. We're told to behold, to take in the work of the Lord, to observe it. He's saying, do you see God's sovereign? Do you see God has control, that He's not surprised? He's not overcome and He's not out of control of your circumstances. God's not out of control of your circumstances. That doesn't mean they're not difficult. In fact, here he's speaking specifically about difficult circumstances. But he's not out of control. And in fact, here's the goodness of God's sovereignty. He's so good, his goodness is like is so powerful that when we that when man intends to do evil things, God's goodness will even use that to bring about good. It's scary, it's hard to wrap our minds around, it's something we struggle with, but it's there in Scripture. Joseph's brothers, early in Genesis, can't stand him, sell him into slavery. Years later, there's famine in the land, and because Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt, and he rises to prominence into Egypt, he brings the nation of Israel into Egypt and actually delivers them. So when his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery, God ended up using that to save the people of God years later. Right? But even more so, when religious leaders sought to execute Jesus as a heretic, full of venom and hate for him, God used that to save the world. God's sovereignty and his goodness is so good and it's so overwhelming that evil can't stop it. And, and I'm not never preaching a fairy tale ending here. I'm not saying that you're going to get the job, that you're going to get the girl, that you're going to get the boy, or that your body or your circumstances won't betray you. But what I am saying is what Scripture tells us is that God won't put you in a place that He can't walk you through. And it will be in the midst of trials, not the removal of trials. It's actually going to be in the midst of trials that you're going to grow in faith and wisdom, according to James 1 that those are the things actually God's going to use. You're going to grow in grace and in knowledge and in hope of God. And what you, what you won't necessarily get on the other end of trials is a changed set of circumstances. You're going to get something better. A deeper sense of rest in your soul that God's in control. That's better. A deeper sense that He holds you in His hand. That He's a refuge. That he's your strength. And that begins to diminish fear, even if your circumstances don't change. Getting everything you want and controlling all your circumstances won't diminish fear. Getting a sense of God's sovereignty will. Now, fearlessness, what we're aiming for, it's born and it's actually bred in the middle of adversity. Not in the absence of it. And it's not because you or I can overcome any kind of diversity if we set our minds to it, y'all, there's a ton of adversity we can't overcome. Okay, Sam Peoples, guess what? He's got a week left now. He's not overcoming that adversity. His body's failing. It's done. But God can. And He's our strength. And we need somebody who's strong for us. Adversity peels away all of our self-sufficiency until we have nothing left but to cling to Jesus. 
And that's the place. That's the place right there where the well of self-sufficiency has run dry. That's the place where fearlessness is born, y'all. Because it's in that place that we cling to God and God alone and we find out that He's strong and He's our refuge and He's our strength. When you have God and nothing else, you're fearless. Stop. Get a sense of His sovereignty. Thirdly, get among the people of God. One of the reasons we need to stop is because we actually don't even know how to be friends anymore. We're too busy with the chaos of life and trying to control it that we don't have time to be part of something that's absolutely annoying and messy but absolutely necessary, and that's the church. God is our refuge, right? This is what the psalmist tells us. A strength, he, he's our refuge and strength and present, um, a present help in trouble. There, there's a location where we're fearless in Him, right? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's repeated again in verse 11. What is it that's not shaken, right? God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. What's being talked about there? The city of God, not you and not me. Not individuals. He doesn't say you won't be shaken as an individual. He says we won't be shaken as the city of God. This psalm falls into this little genre of psalms. There's several of them uh, called Psalms of Zion, Psalms of Jerusalem, Psalms about the city of God. And that's a motif all throughout Scripture. And when you get to the end of Scripture, you get to Revelation 21. This is what John sees at the end of the at the at the end of all things, at the consummation when everything's made new again. He says, "This I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Jerusalem." The city of God is God's people. It's the bride of Christ. It's the church. Fear cannot be conquered on your own. That's the point. God doesn't envision any of us having the ability to conquer it on our own. Fear wants to lead us into loneliness because it knows, it knows that in our weakness, we can actually have faith for each other. And this is what I mean. So right now at South Carolina, where I worked for the last four years, they've been out of school for a week. And my whole body is telling me, hey, right now, for the last four years, you've been at the beach. Which means I love Stanford and I love being here and I love y'all. But my body is saying, like, no, you don't. You love being at the beach more. Man, two weeks ago, when I was staring out at eight more weeks of this quarter... I, this is when David Jones came to Large Group two weeks ago. He's like, man, we got to go to the Dutch Goose after Large Group. And he took me to the Dutch Goose because I, like, I was like, I don't know how, long I, how much longer I can do this, David. I was tired. My family was tired. My wife was tired. My children were irritating. My heart was dry. <laughs> my prayer was empty. It really was. And I didn't, I like, I didn't want this job anymore. I really was like ready to quit two weeks ago. I'm going to be here for a while, don't worry Here's why I'm going to be here for a while Because David Jones took me to the Dutch Goose (laughs) That's not going on the podcast Um, And he had faith when I didn't 
He said, Britain, the church has called you here. The elders set over God's people have said, you need to shepherd this campus. And you're a son of the king, so go and preach like a son of the king. He had faith when I didn't. His faith buoyed mine. I didn't need to read the Bible. I needed someone to read it to me. I didn't want to pray, and I didn't need to pray. I needed somebody to pray with me and for me. Right? We're trying to conquer fear alone, living inside of our heads and trying to cope with the instability of life by ourselves in private and in our hearts, and you can't. We come into rich contact of the security of God through each other. In the church, through friends, sitting under the preaching of His Word, through the sacraments, through other singing. Man, there are times when I don't want to sing, and it is good to hear the voices of others. Through bearing each other's burdens. The same word that actually describes the mountains moving here is the same word that's used of God's people in verse 5 when it says, But she, the people of God, the bride of God, the city of God, she won't be moved. Circumstances, powers, nations may change and may rage, but you know what has always abided? Always. When civilizations rise and fall, guess what's always been there? The people of God. The church. Not individuals. The church. Stop. See that God's sovereign. Get among the people of God, and lastly this, seek life in Jesus We have to seek life in God. There's something in the center of the city, right? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This river in the midst of the city is a motif all throughout Scripture. You read about in Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision. And in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, he prophesies, he talks about that vision, and he's told and he's shown a river that flows out of the temple in 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 the center of Jerusalem. It starts in the temple, and it goes all throughout Jerusalem, and he walks along the river throughout this vision, and everywhere the river goes, there's life and there's flourishing. And you know what? When you get to the end of the Bible, when you get to Revelation 22, it's still describing the city of God, and John says this, he sees this in his vision. There's a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the Lamb, the reference to Jesus as his sacrifice, right? Jesus says of himself in John 7, 37, at the Passover, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water in scripture, y'all, is life. It's source of life. All of scripture points towards this, that Jesus is the true water of life. And drinking, y'all, is just believing in him. It's trusting to His love and it's trusting in His love for His people. The solution to fear is given to us in 1 John. Perfect love casts out fear. See, the solution to fear is actually not, is my faith strong enough? That's what we're prone to think, right? All right, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to cease striving and now I'm going to be more determined to have more faith. That's not what 1 John says. He doesn't say perfect faith casts out fear. He says perfect love casts out fear. Because my faith's weak. And I suspect all of our faiths are much weaker than any of us want to believe or admit. But being loved is the only thing that ultimately casts out fear. Covenantal. Which means, covenantal love, and it means binding. 
never stopping, always and forever love. That's the only thing that can remove fear. If you're loved by Jesus, if you're loved by the King of creation, the God of Jacob, the Lord Almighty, if you're loved by Him, you can't name anything that's worth fearing. Maybe that He'll stop loving you, but what if His love's covenantal? Because that's how He describes it. And covenantal is saying, I bound myself to you no matter what. There's nothing left to fear. Do you see that if God has bound Himself to you in His covenant of love, there's nothing worth fearing. It's love that destroys fear. Elizabeth gave me permission to use this illustration. It was her idea. She's terrified of dancing. Absolutely terrified of dancing. One of her deepest fears. Maybe the deepest fear, right? She danced one time joyously in her life. It was on her wedding night. In front of everybody she's terrified of disappointing, right? And you know why? Because that was the high point of the celebration of our love for each other. She was so enraptured on that night, right? that she didn't care anymore. She literally became fearless. She went into her darkest fears and didn't care. It didn't stop her. Fear is done away with by covenant love. Fear comes from the result of trusting in ourselves, trusting that you can accomplish and secure and guarantee and sustain your circumstances, but you can't. And if you try, your whole life will be a life of ceaseless striving. And rest will be held out in front of you like it's all, you're almost there and you'll never get there. You'll have no time for others unless it fits your agenda or it can make you feel good about yourself. You won't have the capacity to feel sympathy. You'll do good things because that's what pe- people are supposed to do and you'll like the reputation you gain from it. But you won't be able to weep for people, right? Marriage and parenting are going to be a nightmare because it's impo- it would be impossible to conceive of any kind of long-term relationship where you're actually called to be a servant the whole time. Right? Because eventually you need to start doing things that make you happy. Life is going to be full of competition socially, academically, professionally. Friends will be, in a sense, difficult to come by. That's the life of fear, as if you're going to strive to secure your circumstances. The other option is trusting in God's covenant love. That rest and refuge and strength comes from His love comes from leaning on another and giving up on yourself and saying, I have nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the promise that God's in control. Nothing but the promise that Jesus saves those who trust in Him. Nothing but the hope that Jesus' death atones for my sin because I on my own, I can't seem to get myself right. All that I have is the covenant love of God. If you have nothing but Jesus, you'll grow to become fearless. You'll no longer live in the world of ominous and tenuous when only, when I, at least I have this. You'll actually begin to have the capacity of selfless love. And selfless means that you don't do it for recognition. You don't do it for a sense of reward. But rather, you're not threatened by circumstances anymore. So you can put yourself in harm's way because you're freed from striving to secure some kind of safety for your life or stability. You can put yourself in unfavorable places and in costly relationships, and you can give your time and your energy and resources, and if no one ever notices you do it, you won't care. You won't be threatened by that. Because you have Jesus, and He's faithful. And you're going to be able to say along with Paul what he says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are just not really worth comparing. The glory that is going to be revealed to us in Jesus. Life is going to be hard. 
for everybody. For the Christian, life is hard and Jesus is good. That's what it looks like to begin to be fearless. Let's pray.